Hello, hello, and welcome to Shit You Wish You Learned in Grad School. I'm your host, Jennifer Agee, Licensed Clinical Professional Counselor. And here with me today is Susan Dunaway. Susan is a neurotherapist. She is also an LCPC, and she is the owner and founder of Amen Neuro Counseling here in the greater Kansas City area. Also, Susan used to work for me back in our adoption agency days, so we've known each other a really long time. Um, Susan, thank you for coming on today. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you. So what is something you wish you had learned in grad school? Well, since I'm um, now a neurotherapist, I would say it's, it was amazing how much I did not learn about the brain. Mm, you are right about that. It is amazing. Um, so we, we learned all the theories and different theories about counseling, um, but we didn't learn about the brain. And so when I... Um, after working for you, once I went into private practice, um, I found working with children. And I honestly found working with children because um, the other spots were kind of taken. And I was trying to find, make a living, you know? And so sure. I got into play therapy and I started doing some classes on play therapy. And I got pretty far into it until I had to like pick my track, um, my theory. And I got real, real stuck there um, because what I kept thinking was, seems like we keep blaming kiddos for their behaviors. And, and, and of course, some of it is behavioral, some of it is family, but what's going on in their brains? Why can't we see what's going on in their brains? What if it's things that they actually can't control and we're blaming them for things they can't control? Um, and so that's where I got stuck. So I didn't end up getting registered as a play therapist. Um, I left that program um, on this quest to figure out how do I figure out what's going on in the brain? And at the same time, um, I'm at a clinic in Overlook Park and, and another therapist had had a brain injury um, from, a, from an accident. Um, and she was having these seizure-like episodes. I couldn't really figure them out. Um, she was going to KU to, to work on that. And they sent her to integrative medicine. She started doing neurofeedback. Her seizures got much, much, much better and she got her life back. And I'm watching this process and I'm like, uh, hey, what are you doing? <laughs> and so they found out that she was a therapist um, and the neurofeedback people at KU were like, we need more practitioners. You're a practitioner. You know how this works. Why don't you get trained in it? And I just asked her if I could come along and we could get trained in it together. So that was, uh, I think, like nine years ago, maybe. Um, time is weird now, post-COVID, I think. It all gets squished up. Um, but then uh, fast forward, now she and I are the co-owners of Amend. And so when we found neurofeedback, it opened up everything for, for me and how to treat clients at a whole different level. And now that I watch, oh, go ahead. I was just going to ask. So for neurofeedback, for people who are listening, therapists who are listening in, and they've heard of it, but they, they don't really know what it is. Can sure. you just briefly share what it is? Like, what is a client experience when they come to see you and how do you do what you do? Sure. The elevator pitch is that it's physical therapy for the brain. Ooh, that's a good one. Thank you. What we're essentially doing is we are using biofeedback, which a lot of people are familiar with. So you can change all sorts of 
autonomic processes in the body if you have information on what it's doing, your temperature, your heart rate, things like that. This is for brain waves. And so the body only needs information about what it's doing in order to change what it's doing. And so we put a one or two, we have a very simple system. We find that it works just as well as the super complicated ones. We put one or two sensors, electrodes on the head at at different points, depending on the the thing that we're working on. And it just reads the brainwave data like a stethoscope will will listen to your heart. Um, And it amplifies it through some machinery, machinery that we have. And it feeds it back to the client by way of a game that they're looking at. And so when the brainwave data changes in the way that we want, let's say they're anxious, they're going to have a whole lot of what we call high beta. Um, and so high beta activity will be too prominent, too, uh, too in charge. And so we'll say, okay, when you're making less of this, the game will go better. And so they're, it's a very passive type of work because they're not necessarily cognitively thinking, make the game go. Um, cause you can't make your beta go down. So we just tell them, be relaxed, be present and let your brain figure it out. So are you talking about the game? Cause I've actually been to your office cause before I started referring clients to you, I wanted to see what the heck actually people would be doing if I sent them to you. And first of all, the, the cap, you know, that does the testing, it looks like the EEG cap, like what you think of, you know, when when people put those little white caps on and they have the little stuff hooked up to their brain. That's what it looked like to me. And then the game that you're talking about, it's really the one where you control it with your with your brain, right? It's right. on a screen in front of you and it's some sort of game that you then use your mind, like how sci-fi is this, right? You use your mind to control what's happening. Is that right? It is essentially, except that you're, you can't really use your mind. So I, I tell people that it's, Especially for kids, I use this visual that there's your there's your mind and there's your brain. And your mind might be thinking, I'm really confused or I'm really bored or what am I going to have for lunch? And your brain is sending all the signals that are keeping your heart rate and keeping the amount of sweat that you need and are you thirsty and how your, how's your heart going and all of that. So we're trying to get underneath mm-hmm. to this firing pattern. And so you can't think your way through it. It's really kind of funny because when you try really hard, like in the example of the anxiety, you try really hard and you get frustrated, those patterns will actually increase because you're stressed. And, and so it really does actually teach a forced kind of take a deep breath, sit back and relax. But that's about as much control as you have. And then I tell people it's like a bait and switch for your brain. Okay, because in in the beginning, your brain brains like to solve problems. They like to solve puzzles, and so in the beginning, it's just kind of engaged in getting the the points. So there's auditory and visual stimulation that you get. So like, out of girl, out of girl, out of girl. You're on the right track. You're on the right track. But over time, the way the physical therapy part works, um, idea works, is that over time, the brain starts realizing that it's actually a more efficient pattern, having less high beta conserves energy, which is one of the greater goals of the brain overall. So once you show it a more efficient pattern, it starts taking it itself. And so neurofeedback is something that eventually retrains the brain to work in a different pattern. Okay. So if I am sitting there 
how do I actually control what's happening on the screen? What, okay, because you explained the mind in the brain. I thought that was a great explanation, but what am I actually doing and how am I making it happen? You are not. What? Okay. You're, and that's why it's so weird. You have, you have the sensors on your head. You have a couple on your ears that help mathematically make the, make the process happen, make a cleaner signal. And then I'm setting the controls of how hard this is going to be. So you can't go from super high beta to very low levels. You know, you have to catch them where they are. And very slowly, it's a lot of learning theory, which I did learn in grad school. <laughs> very, about 40% success rate actually keeps the brain focused and engaged and not too frustrated. Okay. And, and so I set it so that about 40% of the time, they're going to get a reward. And then we start gradually asking for more, asking okay. for more. So it's, it's, uh, it's a reward system for the brain. Is it essentially rewiring the brain? It, it essentially is. They think they're, if you get really into neurofeedback, you'll get to the real experts who go, we, we don't know. We don't have a clue really what we're doing. We think we know what we're doing. And then we find another thing that blows our minds about what's actually happening. And then that leads us to more questions. So the short answer is it is showing new pathways and rewiring. And so I, I tell people it's like going from a grassy field to an interstate. And you just have to go over that over and over and that um, things that, that fire together, wire together. And we're just practicing over and over and over and over this different pattern. What are the primary things that you see, you've seen the most success with in using neurofeedback? Um, ADHD has the greatest success rate numbers wise. It's at the same level that medication is about 85%. Okay. Um, OCD has really, really high success rates. Um, concussion, post-concussion has really good results when people still have headaches, post-concussion or brain fog. Um, we get really good results with the reduction of headaches and a reduction of that brain fog. Um, we see memory increase with it um, if it's like concussion-based or, or OCD-based. Um, then I end up, what really actually happens is because it's categorized as experimental and so it doesn't get covered by insurance what we end up seeing is the hardest people so if you can go and see a clinician that can treat adhd behaviorally and you can get a script for adderall uh it's much more cost effective mm. um but people who are like but what we want is a, a brain that's changed over time then it is more of an investment um yeah. But and we see really good success rates with that. But because um, of the cost, we generally end up seeing really, really difficult clients, really difficult cases um, of people who just didn't have success other places or with anything that was typical. That is so freaking frustrating to me, though, because if uh -huh. we can create a change where then people are not dependent on medication anymore and like KU play. Big places are using it. This is not like some woo-woo science that nobody knows about. It's very well-known and well-researched. Mm -hmm. Why in the heck is it not being covered by insurance? That is so frustrating. That, that really reduces the level of access to care that some people can have. Absolutely. It does. Um, it, it, the more frustrating thing is that it was completely covered up into the 1980s. And then what happened? Ritalin. Ritalin. 
came on the market. Mm-hmm. And there, there was a massive um, lobbyist group that changed it from effective to experimental. Well, there's a whole book about it called Symphony in the Brain. It'll just make you even more mad. That kind of stuff will fire me up for sure because we're, we sit with people who are hurting, whose lives are real. They're struggling because their ADHD is affecting their relationships, their ability to focus at work or school, their confidence and thinking they're um, a bad kid or I'm lazy or I'm not. And to deny them access to something that works, ooh, that could, I, we could talk about that in not a, not a super <laughs> nice way probably for a while. But okay, so it's not covered by insurance. Um, that, that's got to change. Well, good luck. Okay. We get some really good people who've been working on it for a really long time, but one of the, there are some problems with our industry for sure, with the neurofeedback industry. We are a niche and inside that niche, there's about, I don't know, there's a ton of different ways to do this. And it really depends on the equipment and your training. And, and so we're too uh, fragmented, in, in my opinion, to have a great coalesced group that can go and, and you know, fight against it. Okay. So we, we don't help each other out in that, in that respect. We're just kind of a bunch of like analytic eggheads sitting in our own little offices doing our thing and in just slightly different ways. Most all of them super effective. It's just a, a, a different take on it and different equipment. Um, and I think that's part of the problem with, with getting something changed as with as big of a mountain as that is to climb. Sure. And, and that makes sense. You know, most of us were in the muck and the mire of doing the work with clients every day. And so to think about taking on, you know, big pharma and all that kind of stuff, <laughs> it's like, that is not on my radar screen. I have a full caseload. Uh, I got to pay my bills, you know, so it doesn't necessarily philosophically we want it, but it's hard to create the, the rallying cry to make that happen. I want to circle back around though to medication because I do refer to you. We're in the same town for ADHD um, a lot because I'm I'm a firm believer if you can heal something in a more natural way and not have to take medication that's what almost everybody wants if given the choice Um, now are most people able to fully get off the medication how long does it take you know give me a little bit of that kind of stuff so that if people are talking about this option with a client they're a little more informed about how to speak on the subject sure what we say is that we're not going to promise that you're going to get off your medication. So we can't have that as the primary goal because then it becomes incredibly frustrating to people if that's not their story. And so what we tell people is our primary goal is a reduction of your symptoms mm-hmm. and, uh, and improve quality of life. And so a lot of times that is a reduction or um, a tapering off or or, or eventually not needing the medication. But okay. sometimes it's, I, I've had kids who need just a little bit, but their psychiatrists are like, we're not really sure this is so um, subclinical at, as, as far as your dosage for your weight and age. But it's essentially like the neurofeedback is doing like 90% and then it just needs a little bit of a, an extra push. And so sometimes like the kid grows um, but their need for medication does not increase. Sometimes they can taper off um, and and be done with it. But we don't ever guarantee that because of that. We don't want the wrong goal in mind. Okay. So what up 
what's the average length of time somebody will need to have neurofeedback sessions? And how often do they happen? Like multiple times a week or once a week, like tra more traditional therapy? Mm -hmm. If you look up kind of the how to do neurofeedback, they'll tell you to do it two or three times a week. And because that's great learning uh, a pattern for the brain. Um, what we found is that who, who can do that? Who can pay for three out-of-pocket sessions? Who can leave work or leave school three times a week? Um, it, and so sometimes people can come in multiple times a week, but generally people are doing it once a week for their schedules, our schedules, their budget. Um, and so the number um, depends on what they're coming in for. So a typical ADHD person is about 40 sessions. Okay. And a typical OCD person might be more like 30. Anxiety stuff tends to regulate faster. Okay. Okay. Concussions, it really varies on how bad it is, but it, it can take a while. And once we get to something called developmental trauma, you can have like 100 because we're trying to rewire things that that happened pre-verbal. Okay. I'll tell you one of the areas, um, and, I, and I will bring in an expert on at a later date, but I wish we learned more about TBIs in grad school because as you're sitting with clients and you're starting to hear stories, you find out these behaviors weren't present and that prior to this car accident or different things like that. Yes. As you start yes. to see the impact of that, mm -hmm. and but we're not taught jack squat about it um and so that's one of the areas i think um that would be helpful for us to know but that's my little my little side point what are you yeah. most passionate about when it comes to neurofeedback and running your business like what do you feel the most passionate about what i feel the most passionate about are people that really need this to get better and not into just the optimal, I'm a good athlete, I want to be better. And, and, and pro athletes use neurofeedback in order to, to get, um, increase their reactivity or their, their response time um, and their, all kinds of things. So there's, there's like Olympic athletes that, that will, will use it. And I'm not really interested in taking somebody from good to better or from optimal to professional, whatever. I really want the the kid that had the major head trauma that we were able to help his brain regulate and he was able to graduate high school. Yes. That's, that's the, the stuff where they had labeled him lazy. They had labeled him all sorts of things that should not have been. And now he's a high school graduate. Like those kinds of, of things, the kid who could not figure out what to do with, had no problem solving abilities and is now on the college scholarship. Like those are the people I want. And the developmental trauma kids that couldn't make an attachment and were reactive and were running away who are now sitting and having conversations, even though it's hard and able to stay regulated. Those, those, all of those types of things are what I'm the most passionate about. Yeah, I could see that. And talking about that reactive attachment piece that takes us back to our adoption, day, our adoption days and some of yep. the kiddos, especially from overseas that um, would struggle with that. And I'm glad that there's this tool in the tool belt now that families have access to. Um, I wish there was greater access, of course, but that's a battle, you know, for another day. Um, I know that you're a business owner as well. And because I know you personally, I know that you, you did not start out as like, I know how to run a business. <laughs> what are some, because I'm, I'm very passionate about helping people grow in their skill set, but also become confident as business owners, because 
when you're in grad school and you think, oh, I might do private practice, you don't think I'm going to own a business. You think I'm going into private practice or something. Right. Which is a minimalizing of the fact that you own a whole freaking business here. <laughs> so what were some of the things that have been the greatest helpers or takeaways for you to um, establish yourself and feel confident as a business owner? Um, I do not feel confident as a business owner. And so here's what I did. What, one of the definitions of intelligence um, is that you compensate for your weaknesses and, and you well know my ability to organize. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I have a business partner who's amazing at organization <laughs> and we hired um, an office manager who's amazing at scheduling and organization and all of the things. And we hired a great accountant um, that keeps us on on track. And so I outsourced and partnered up with people who know all the things that I don't know. That uh, That's brilliant. I mean, I've done that all throughout my career and especially even in private practice, I don't have to be good at everything. I have to know that I'm not good at everything. I have to be honest with myself about the areas that I need support in and not apologize for the fact that I need support in them. Again, most of us as helper healers, we don't really love doing QuickBooks. We don't love, you know, doing some of the super tasky things because a lot of us are more relationship driven. And so, recognizing that and being honest about it is a win already. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and with all of the things that we didn't learn in grad school, like when you mentioned head injuries, there's also um, viruses that attack the brain post-COVID and really has brought that to light. But um, there's a, a whole bunch of kids that are misunderstood that have basically a brain inflammation. And so when there is extra things to learn, that's the stuff I want to learn, not myself really good at QuickBooks. And so, because I can't outsource the the work that that I am doing. And so that's why I've chosen, like, if this is already in your wheelhouse and you already kind of like this stuff, run with it um, and I will pay you. Yeah. Well, I like that. I like that point. We have to free ourselves to have the energy and the space to continue to grow in the ways that we still want to serve. And if there's if there's time and energy that's limited, because we all have limited time and energy, where do we want to invest that to make the greatest impact for the people that we serve and for our families? Yeah. Yeah. And to have some energy when we walk back in for the two teenage boys in my house. Yes. Which requires a lot of energy. I Those days were very busy days. I remember them well. Yeah. So you mentioned... Um, the viruses, can you pick that up when you're doing the neurofeedback testing? Like, how do you know that? We we cannot pick it up in the way that would give a definitive answer. No. Okay. Um, we can see it in, um, it's almost like seeing a fever and then not exactly knowing what causes the fever. So what we can pick up on is generally very slow activity in the brain which is like brain fog um, and cognitive inefficiencies. The brain is just slugging along. And so we use that plus their history, uh, plus blood work that, that we'll have them do or, or they'll bring in. Um, so it's, it's pooling a whole lot of things together. Um, and, and then with things like PANS, that will happen right after either like a strep infection or um, a, an illness or sometimes a vaccine, um, there's, 
or a tick bite, all kinds of different things that sometimes parents can point to. Um, but they'll all say the same words like, my kid suddenly became crazy. My kid was normal. Then this happened. And then my kid became crazy. And so they all kind of saying the same words. Mm. And so you get to pick up those patterns and, and assume that that um, may be there. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I'm thinking about what I learned about the brain in grad school and all the ways we did not acknowledge at the time the brain body connection. Like there was this woo woo part that acknowledged the brain body connection. You know, where do you feel that in your body and all that stuff? And I literally do say that. So I'm not judging anyone else who knows because I say that to clients all the time. But you know, there's this kind of existential acknowledgement that it's connected. But in terms of really looking at someone as the whole person and seeing the way truly our mental health is affected by things that are unseen that are happening in the brain, viruses that are floating around and are leaving lingering effects, are beta waves, things like that. I don't remember anyone ever talking to me about that. No, it's it. I had none of that. And I, I really didn't understand the gut brain connection. And so now I talk a ton about, we talk a lot about poop. I ask a lot of poop questions because I want to know how, how is that system working? Because there's more serotonin in the, in the gut than in the brain. And I had no clue about that. I, I learned about some neurotransmitters, but I didn't know that there was far more serotonin in the gut. And if your gut is off, how can it get up to your brain? Uh, that that type of stuff is amazing. We didn't even know that there was an actual immune system in the brain until like maybe 20 years ago. Yeah. And it's it's amazing the things that we that might just not have existed in the late 90s when I was going to grad school that they just sure. know about. Yeah. And well, and I think that's a good thing to keep in mind that one of the things I actually love about this field is you will continue to evolve and grow and learn. I mean, CEUs are required, but also what demands it of you is the fact that you genuinely care about your clients, which yes. makes you become a researcher like none other. You right. care about people. Someone is stuck. I know that I want to help them. And so you'll go to trainings, you'll watch YouTube videos, you know, listen to podcasts and things in that effort. And so always be a lifelong learner. The best therapist you will ever have is one who knows that they don't know everything and yes. is committed to a lifelong learning and being on the journey with you. Absolutely. Totally agree. All right, Susan, thank you for coming on today. Um, how can people get into contact with you? Um, my, our business is called Amend Neurocounseling and um, our, our website is amendnc.com because nobody wants to spell neurocounseling. Yes, you are. That's right. <laughs> um, my email is susan at amendnc.com. So look us up. We have a very awful web presence because I just never paid much attention to it. But you can still find us if you look. <laughs> well, I think that's one of the things that when you hit a certain level, like it is important to keep your web presence up and all of those things. But it falls to the back burner when you start getting a lot of referrals organically. Yeah. You need a landing page, but yeah, I've, I've been in that zone myself a few times. Um, okay. So thank you for coming on. If people want to connect more with me or with counseling community, the podcast counselingcommunity.com, you can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. All the links will be below. Thank you so much for listening and get out there and live your best dang life.